From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Aside from green bean casserole, few things on the Thanksgiving table are as polarizing as pie. Is it warm or is it, you know, room temperature? Do you need ice cream or not? I've been talking with author Shauna Seaver. She grew up in the Midwest where there's a vibrant culture of home baking. But it wasn't something she fully appreciated until she moved back home after being away for quite some time. And so it gave me a chance to re-examine home in that way and think about those influences and those differences that make it so much more more than just flyover country. So even I was surprised being from there. Seaver's the author of a new book about the all-American traditions of American baking. It's called Midwest Made. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to Welcome be here. Welcome to our coast <laughs> and our insane temperature. Well, I did live in California for 13 years well, there you go. before I went back home. So when you went back home, what was it you were chasing? Affordability? Actually, we left pretty suddenly because my husband got a great job offer. And I have two kids, and we were living in San Francisco at the time. I lived in L.A. for almost five years, San Francisco for eight. And about the time that we moved, it just felt like we were kind of looking for the next thing. It didn't really know what that would be. And then when the opportunity came to go back, it was kind of like, all right, well, I guess that's what we're doing. And going home is what inspired the book. And where is home? Just outside Chicago, Oak Park, to be exact, is where we live now. But I grew up more north of the city in the northwest suburbs. So baking traditions in the Midwest run deep. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this belief in no carb left behind, Mm -hmm. as opposed to (laughs) what we like to think we are here, but aren't really. Could you describe the definitive food personality of this region of the country, if you think you can, and Mm. your five baking tenants? Yes. Well, the baking tenants were really what informed the writing of the book, because when you talk about trying to put into words the character, the food or culinary character of a place like the Midwest, it's very, very hard to do. (laughs) So that's a tough question. We on coasts think of the Midwest as one monolithic place. Correct. But it's just like everywhere else in this country. It's completely regional and populated by tons of different people. It is. It's incredibly layered and very complex. And it wasn't something that I realized until I went away and discovered the things that I had always taken for granted and thought were just boring and everyday and normal didn't find those things in California. And I'm talking about, you know, the things about baked goods that that's just so fascinating is so many of them have history and story to them too. And the immigrant influences that brought those recipes specifically to the Midwest, lots of different European influences in particular. And you still find those influences throughout the region in different pockets. So the Scandinavians and Minnesota and Germans and Wisconsin, and people are very proud of their heritage. And that wasn't something I really thought about until I went home because I had started my career as a food writer on the West Coast. And when you do that, you know, you drop a food writer into any <laughs> any place and suddenly the lens they're looking at, is it's very different. And so it gave me a chance to re-examine home in that way and think about those influences and those differences that make it so much more than just flyover country. So even I was surprised being from there. That's so wonderful. So what are the five tenets? Bake big, bake easy, bake with purpose, bake from the past, and bake in the present. 
So bake big, meaning abundance. Why would you make a couple of cookies when you can put them in a 9 by 13, right? <laughs> That's sort of the spirit of the Midwest right there. Bake easy is, is also similar. So how can you streamline a recipe? If you are going to spend a long time doing a multi-step recipe, the results really better be worth it, and you're probably only going to do it a few times a year. So I tried to keep that in mind as I was structuring the chapters of the book. Bake with purpose. There is always, always, always a reason to bake in the Midwest. And that can be a craving on a weeknight, or it can be a birthday or a holiday. But one of the things I love about baking and why I've always chosen baking as my focus is that baking is something that is always going to be beyond the everyday. There's always going to be a specific reason for it. I always say we have to cook, but we get to bake. It's always going to be special. Um, so true. It is. It absolutely is. It's even more true in the Midwest. So there's always a reason. Sometimes it's just because it's 20 degrees out and you need to warm the house up. But there's always a reason. Um, and then baking from the past, we love our family recipes and we love sharing the stories that come with recipes. And then baking in the present was an important part of this project because I wanted to take some of those kitschy recipes that have that Midwestern reputation, a lot of jello, a lot of cool whip, and modernize them and not use use those processed ingredients. So that's part of the baking in the present. So which states actually make up the Midwest? Can you remember? <laughs> I do. There are 12 of them that I decided to include in the book. And typically people think of those eight just around the Great Lakes and then including Missouri and Ohio. It's, you know, that sort of eight states. I decided to include the Dakotas, Kansas, and Nebraska, because even though some people think of that as being plain states, I find that when you talk to people from those states, they call themselves Midwesterners. And certainly a lot of the recipes that you find in the other Midwestern states appear there. The same kinds of immigrant influences also appear there, and that has a lot to do with the influence of farming in those states. So because I am Midwestern, I didn't want to offend anyone. <laughs> and I decided to include those four states. I love that. So now we have 12 states. But I do say in the beginning of the book that it's important when you're looking at the Midwest to think about where the person is from that's trying to tell you the story. So for me, I'm a Great Lakes snob. That is my hub, is that part of the Midwest. And so it will affect what I consider to be the iconic recipes or the things that are most a part of my personal memory. So I really had to stretch beyond what my view was to include other parts of this vast, varied region. The holiday cookie tin. Yes. Is so iconic. But not so much here in Los Angeles. Mm. Tell us the tale of the area's immigrant influence through the holiday cookie tin. Well, that's a way to represent the Midwest is by looking at the cookie tin. It's a visual and delicious representation of all the different influences. When I think of cookies in a cookie tin, I go for my grandma's heirloom sugar cookies, Kalaki, which is my very Chicago accent way of pronouncing that. <laughs> my Polish friends say it much more elegantly. Um, you're always going to find that. Peanut butter blossoms, little peanut butter cookies with the little chocolate kiss shoved in the middle. I reworked that recipe for the book because I really wanted to bump up that nutty flavor and make the filling more of a creamy, bittersweet ganache to sort of make it salty sweet and that modern flavor that we really love. The cookie tin, I think, is especially important because every family's tin is going to be a little bit different, but there also are things about it that are all the same. And so it's a unique way of sharing your family story 
in this one little vessel. And I just love that idea of that. With Thanksgiving biting Tomorrow. our heels. <laughs> it's soon. It's really soon. <laughs> I want to focus on pie. Yeah. And anyway. Why not? We have this obsession with pie here. There's a whole pie <laughs> chapter in the book. It is such a huge part of the region, for sure. Why is pie so connected to the Midwest culturally? Well, I think it actually involves most of those tenants we talked about. Why would you make a bunch of fussy little cupcakes when you can make one pie and feed your whole family? I think it's a wonderful way to showcase all of the bounty of the region. So, you know, the delicious fats, dairy, fruits, all of those things can be reflected in pie. And I think the most beautiful thing about a pie is that it is meant to be shared. It exemplifies this philosophy that we need to take time and sit. You cannot stand in a corner with a napkin and eat a slice of pie. You must stop and sit in a chair and at a table, preferably with somebody else, and enjoy a slice of pie. It's just the function of, of the thing itself. And so I think a lot of the characteristics of what makes the Midwest great are, are really reflected in that one little humble dish. For you personally, what constitutes a pie? Well, there has to be a crust. And the crust actually doesn't necessarily have to be a pastry crust or a cookie crust. I have a recipe in the book for a lemon angel pie, which actually uses a meringue as the crust. But I think the idea is you have a plate lined with something sturdy that can be filled with something delicious. Certainly does not have to be double crust. In fact, when I was researching the book and I was sort of doing informal social media polling, I found overwhelmingly people wanted a crumble top apple pie Isn't and not that, a double crust. Which to me is just I like, don't know, I Evan. don't understand that. I <laughs> love crumble topping. I do too. But I love it on berries. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because that's how I did it. I decided to save my crumble top for the blueberry and lime crumble pie oh, in the book. I love It's such a great combination. And I had to do a double crust apple pie and just my favorite technique for that. And that's how I opted to do it. But it's a hot button issue. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> People think it's weird that pie has hot button issues. It absolutely, but it absolutely does. does. Is it warm or is it, you know, room temperature? Oh. Do you need ice cream or not? It's endless. It's endless. Mm -hmm. But for you personally, is pie fruit pie? Or is it mm. is it a cream pie? You know what? I I will kind of take any pie, uh, truthfully. But my first thoughts do go to fruit pies. Those are sort of my earliest memories of pies. And I just cannot get enough of that balance of sweet and tart and the combination of the pastry with the filling. I mean, to me, that's the classic pie. You know, it's so funny. Golden raisin sour cream pie is a pie that we don't think about often. But actually, recently, I wrote down a note. <laughs> just before you're reading your book, I wrote down a note. It just said, think about sour cream raisin pie. Think about it. Just, just think, think about, about it. it. It's such a specific regional pie. It is. It's wild. It shows up a lot in Kansas and more towards those borderline states that we were talking about, the plain states. I think it really comes from the fact that even in the Midwest in the dead of winter, you would have plenty of dairy, but you don't have any fruit. And so the raisins are your fruit in that instance. And so I really think it's as simple as that. I mean, that's pure farm food. It's what you have in the pantry on hand that can still be made delicious in the dead of winter. So the Midwest is not a hotbed for citrus. 
How did the Ohio Shaker lemon pie become so synonymous with the region? It is such an outstanding pie. It is so good. It's almost like lemon marmalade in a pie shell. So essentially, you're taking the entire lemon, pith, peel, the whole thing. You slice it very, very thin. You macerate it in sugar. Some recipes just have you do it an hour or two. I find that the longer you let it go, it's much more palatable. Overnight. It takes all that bitterness out of the pith. Um, And my favorite lemons for this are going to be Meyer lemons, which is one of the things I miss the most about California. There used to be a a house near my old house that had a Meyer lemon tree. I could just grab them. Oh, I miss it. But they really are, I call them the Elizabeth Taylor of citrus. They are like ambrosial and delicious. And so they're perfect for a pie like this because they have very little pith as well. After you macerate them and bake them into the pie, it becomes very sort of jammy and it's just the best part of a lemon. It's the essence of lemon. And I think the reason why it's called a shaker pie, I know this is the reason why, the shakers were very frugal people. And so at the time, lemons were a rarity. That was not something that you could get. As you said, in the Midwest, we still can't. So when they would have them, there was no just let's juice them. (laughs) You have to use the entire thing. And so that was the, the shaker mentality of waste nothing. And out of that, we got this delicious pie. Okay, let's talk about pumpkin pie. Let's. What are some of your oldest memories of pumpkin pie? Mrs. Smith's frozen pie that had been baked earlier in the morning, cooling on my grandmother's dryer in the laundry room. (laughs) I don't know why, but I think she probably put it in there because none of the kids would stick their fingers in it if it was in the laundry room. But that's where it was always cooling on Thanksgiving afternoon when we would come over for dinner. So that was what it was. And when I was a child, I wasn't a huge fan. I just wanted the Cool Whip because it was always served with Cool Whip in my family. But as I've gotten older, I really have grown to love it. I have moved a bit to the sweet potato pie camp, Mm. which was very disturbing to my mother. (laughs) Um, But now I really appreciate the difference between the two, that pumpkin pie is more lean in a strange way. Yes, that's a very good way of describing it. And because of that, you can eat more of it. You can. And it also means that you can make your custard with heavy cream... And really do it up, and it will still have a lightness to it. I really like to play up the spices in mine, and in the book, I top it with an Italian meringue, which I know sounds fussy, but it's actually very practical if, you, if you're if you the person who's always recruited to bring the pie, because you can bring Italian meringue with you. It keeps beautifully, and you can top it when you're there and bring one of those little mini blow torches and just sort of blow everybody's minds with your artistry. So remind people what an Italian meringue is. An Italian meringue is a meringue that is made with a cooked syrup. So you're going to cook your syrup on the stove. You have to use a candy thermometer, but it's really just kind of like your brain on the stove. You don't have to freak out about it. You don't have to think about anything. Just watch the thermometer. So softball stage with that, and then take it off and drizzle a sugar syrup into the whipping egg whites, as opposed to just whipping together granulated sugar and egg whites. And it's wonderfully silky and marshmallowy. And I love it with pumpkin pie because it is leaner. It's not adding more cream to you know, a cream-filled custard, which is how I like my pumpkin pie. So what kind of spices do you use? I've become very fond of using five-spice powder in baked goods. That's so interesting because I use chai spice. Well, there you go. Chai masala powder that I get in the Indian 
spice shop. And that's the same kind of idea. So you're taking something in the book, I believe it's just cinnamon and ginger and some of the the usual suspects as well. But Chinese five spices, it's the same kind of thing. You know, you have these very baking-friendly spices, but it just lights it up a little bit. makes people go, what is that? It's so good. What is that? And it's usually the star anise that makes people say that. And I love that flavor with um, cherries and apples as well. Oh, yum. Not star anise for me, but for others. <laughs> You're not a fan of that flavor? No, it's my kryptonite. Oh, I love it. I love it. I put it in the secret ingredient cherry slab high in the book. I cook part of the cherries down with Pinot Noir and then do the just the pod in there for a bit. It makes cherries taste like a cherry Jolly Rancher to me, like cherry on steroids. Well, maybe that will be a way in for me to just enough get over this thing. Do you have any tips for getting the first slice out of the tin? I do. I actually prepare my pie plates like I would prepare a cake tin. And I have no idea why I didn't think of this sooner. This is actually Paula Haney of the Hoosier Mama Pie Company in Chicago, a legend. She's a genius. And when I went to visit her in her shop in the early stages of writing this book, I noticed her staff spraying all their tins with a nonstick spray and then just a really light coating and then flouring them. And they're tapping out the flour just like you do with any cake pan. I'm like, why are we not see, I, always doing this? See, I always thought that my pastry is so loaded with butter mm-hmm. that I don't need to do that. And yet. It sticks. It does. And I th- I don't know why this this isn't something that more of us are doing, but I'm telling you, if you prepare your pan this way, you'll never have to, like, murder the whole thing to get the first slice out. There's, there's always this thing, like, the first slice is like the, you know, the sacrificial well, it's slice. Well, co- it's the cook slice. It's the cook slice. But I'm telling you now, if you do this, the cook slice can actually be very beautiful, and it comes out in, in all one piece. This has been so much fun. Oh, thank you so much. This is just a thrill. That's Shauna Seaver, a cookbook author and daughter of the Midwest. Her latest book is Midwest Made. After the break, a look at one of the most famous bakeries in the world. My conversation with third-generation boulangeuse, bread baker, Apollonia Poilin, when we return. On the newest episode of Nocturne, KCRW's podcast about the night... Rancher Sally Gale was driving home in the rain when she noticed a parade of newts risking their lives to cross a small country road and reach the lake on the other side. She knew then that their survival was up to her. If you touch something, you have a connection, and you don't want that beautiful little creature to be run over by some stupid car or truck. Hear the story on Nocturne, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. In 1970, I made my first trip to Europe. Paris was my destination, and at the top of my list was a pilgrimage to the bakery called Poilin. Poilin loaves are legendary, the most famous European bread in the world. At that time, there was no Instagram, no YouTube showing me what to expect, and so my mind was completely blown when owner Lionel Poilin took me below the store to see the ovens. It was a milestone on my journey to food obsession. It's a bread that when you have a slice, you feel content because you feel fed. And that's really how my grandfather started the business. The neighborhood in which he started was filled with artists and craftsmen that needed to feed their day's work. 
and our bread. Check that box. That's Apollonia Poilan, the daughter of Lionel Poilan and a third-generation baker. In 2002, she took over the bakery Poilan following the tragic death of her parents in a helicopter crash. At the time, she was an 18-year-old student at Harvard. 17 years later, the name Poilin remains synonymous with baking excellence. It's also the title of Apollonia's new book, her first in English. So Poilin was started in 1932 by my grandfather. And over the years, whether it was my father structuring the business or for the 17 years I've been in charge of it, um, we now have in Paris four bakeries, three of which have their own bake houses. The fourth has a mill. We have a cafe. We have a manufacture where there's 24 ovens and as many quote-unquote bakeries to ensure distribution around Paris surroundings and through transporters like FedEx, the larger worldwide distribution. And in London, for almost 20 years, we've had a bakery and a cafe and a local distribution as well. It's incredible. How many loaves are you making a day? We bake anywhere between three to 5,000 loaves every day. And we can do that because we compile the bakehouses. We have those 24 ovens at the manufacture and the stores and the aggregate of it, batches of anywhere between 35 to 50 in the store to 100 at the manufacture at a time, handmade by one baker from start to finish, adds up to numbers. The process that your father originally created at the Manufacture mm -hmm. is fascinating. Could you describe in greater detail the idea he had and how it's built? Yeah. Okay, so first I need to like just give you the background for this. So in the late 70s, distribution is picking up. My father is faced with the problem, the classic growing of a family business problem where how do you carry on building quantity without compromising on quality? And he had developed and perfected the family method uh, with one baker baking his batch from start to finish. And in discussion with my mom, and also prompted by the fact that he needed to move production space, they found a spot that was just one empty place where they could build their vision of how they would develop the family business which is compiling the bakehouses to build up the production capacity without compromising on quality because it operates like 24 local bakeries, just one next to the other. So it's a one-stop. So it's a circle. And so it's a circle. And, and so every wedge exactly. is helmed by a hearth. Exactly. So it's really, I mean, the place is beautiful. My mom was an architect. My father was a baker. And in the early 80s, they built a remarkable, still contemporary to this day, operation. So it's a round building, which is a really beautiful shape to look, and it inserts really beautifully between the woods behind it and the wheat fields to the front, beautiful garden surrounding it. At the center of it, there is wood for the wood-fired ovens stock. Um, think of it as a sort of, you know, like small little mountains of wood pieces. Then there's a second ring around it with all the little bakehouses, and each bakehouse is effectively two working stations. So the baker, although he works on his own or on her own on the production, they have the presence of someone else. And then you have a little sky dome, which gives you the light of the day. You have an outlook on the outside garden. 
And there's a third ring, which is just a circulation route so that all the bread that's produced into the bakehouses makes their way to the piers to be delivered. It's really extraordinary. There are no written recipes at the bakery. Mm -hmm. Starting with your cookbooks in French, when did you feel or know that the time was right to share the legacy and the technique? So for this book, it became very apparent that I wanted to put forward different uses of breads. Bread as a food, but also bread as an ingredient, bread as a link to bring people around the table to foster the sense of community. But I also needed to give a recipe that would allow people to bake bread at home if they didn't have access to my bread or if they wanted to get their hands dirty. Because a lot of the way we teach at the bakery and train our bakers is about using their five senses to tune the recipe, which doesn't need writing per se. It's really our process is an apprenticeship process where it's about learning the gestures. It's about feeling um, your environment with your five senses to adjust on a daily basis. And so that it's the same quality product, despite it being hot or cold, dry or humid on that day. How long does it take a baker to go through that apprenticeship? Typically, it takes nine months. Did you do it? My father created that system, and there are some of our bakers that learn faster. And essentially, oversimplifying things a little, on day one, um, the apprentice observes his master baker, and on the last day, roles are inversed. And over the course of nine months, the apprentice bakers can get to see the effects of different seasons and different meteorologies on the quality of the of the loaf and how that makes over the years for a difference between an experienced and an unexperienced baker. Yeah, they can adapt to the different weather that's, that's exactly happening. That's right. So let's talk about some recipes of what we can do with the bread. First of all, one of my favorite things is what you do with crumbs. Mm -hmm. So can we talk about your granola? Yeah. So the recipes of the book are threefold. They're recipes of poilan that are adapted to the home setting. There are recipes where you can use the bread when it's at its freshest or when it is its driest, in acknowledgement that some people, you know, bread will eventually, you know, go stale, and so you might as well have use it at its fullest. But there's also what I call bread cooking. So using bread from crust to the very last crumb. And there are a million recipes out there, and a lot of them were fueled by stories that people have shared with me on how there's a bread couscous, and when Parmesan was missing or too expensive, you could toast breadcrumb and turn it into... A cheese-esque flavor. Yeah, it would be a topping just to have the different texture. Yeah, a topping for, for a different texture. Uh, and especially with um, more complex uh, breads, it can be, you know, all the more flavorful or you can just add spices to it. For the bread granola, I actually once watched a video on how to make granola at home. And I thought, you know, this is not as hard as it sounded like. And I wanted to do it at home. I didn't have enough oats. And for lack of oats, I thought, well, you know, oats are not all that different from a piece of bread. <laughs> and I had different breads at home. And basically, I dried them up so that they were a little, so that I could crush them and turn them into like oat-esque things and just clad them with honey, more dried fruit, more nuts, and created a bread granola. And what I found, and this is why I've put this recipe in, in the book, is what I found is that having some breadcrumb in your granola actually lightens the end product. And that's just because 
the bread has been cooked or the grain has been cooked. So it's just more, the whole thing is more digestible. I, I just, I, when I was going through the book, I'm like, oh, well, this is definitely something I, I have to have. So when I was in Paris and I was staying in the 11th, I was like, oh, okay, I'm in Silver Lake. <laughs> I understand where I am. And I was starving when I first got there. And, and I went to a little cafe uh, across the street from my hotel. And it was like the avocado toast yep. cafe, which was hilarious, but delicious. We, of course, love our avocado toast. But you have a twist on it. I do. We opened a cafe in 2011 in London. And my manager was uh, seeing... Uh, an Australian. And so we had avocado toast and I, you know, it was Vegemite, avocado, chili flakes. And, you know, that was pretty straightforward. And uh, later I was at the cafe for breakfast and I needed a sturdy breakfast and I wanted a little bit of fruits. There was not much because we were still starting. And so I thought, I remembered tasting in um, macaron class, um, master class by Pierre Hermé, a combination of avocado and banana. And I knew it worked well together. And so essentially I went from the macaron class to the Australian-inspired tartine and did a combo for my breakfast where I did toast, a little bit of butter because I just love salted butter, um, avocado, banana, lime juice, lime zest, chili flakes to have a little bit of spike and bring, you know, some structure to avocado and banana for that matter, and a little bit of honey. Um, the honey just brings it together. I mean, it's really unnecessary if you don't want to go into the sugar. Um, but yeah. Oh, God, sounds so good. And it will feed you. And that's the thing. I love to have a warm and hefty breakfast that will fuel my morning. Because you start really early. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, aside from the miche, I would say probably the other really famous product at the bakeries are the apple tarts, mm -hmm. the individual little apple tarts. And you give a recipe for them in the book. Um, I love how they're so simple, that the apple slices themselves aren't tossed with sugar. The sugar not. It's just it's sprinkled just, on top. It's just sprinkled at the end on top. And so you make the apple tart, puff pastry, apples, and that's it. You bake it, and then when you take out the apples from apple tarts from the oven, then you sprinkle it with just a teeny weeny bit of sugar, and that will caramelize. I, I love it for that reason as well. Oh, so good. But we're kind of obsessed with pie here on the show. <laughs> we host we host an enormous pie contest every year. Mm -hmm. And you have this marvelous tart, a triple apple compote tart. <laughs> first of all, when I first looked at the photograph, I said, is this like dip in the center? I was trying to figure out what all the concentric circles were. Can you describe it, starting with the crust? The crust, and that's that's the key point here. So this crust is a non-baked crust. I, I read a recipe once of, in French, they would call it a, a raw tart shell, and it was nuts and dates to hold it together. And in being in the mindset of expanding on what you can do with a piece of bread, using bread as an ingredient and not just as a food, um, I tested <laughs> my bread and my walnut bread, adding dates. Uh, and, you know, the gluten also creates a beautiful bind to hold this non-baked uh, tart shell. And then it's about just adding applesauce, pan-seared apples, and then because every time I do this tart, I really do it with whatever I have on hand at home. So 
I actually started it with um, a chocolate ganache, and that's beautiful because it holds the tart together. And, you know, you can do the same thing with a mix of pumpkin puree and white chocolate, but just also a really thoroughly baked applesauce to make it thicker, to make it hold. Very dark brown, beautifully caramelized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you really need to push it to that level so that it concentrates the sugars and therefore makes it really thick, tall together, because that's sort of key in that non-baked tart shell. The book is really wonderful, and it expresses both the tradition that you are continuing and also the things you've incorporated that are of the 21st century. So that's not easy to do. I congratulate you on that. I wish we had another 20 minutes to talk. (laughs) Thank you so much, Apollonia. Thank you so much. That's third-generation baker Apollonia Poilan. Her book is Poilan. After the break, we're talking Thanksgiving, specifically how to craft the perfect menu if you happen to be vegan or have vegans coming to the table. Stick around. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Let's say you've recently gone vegan, or you know someone who has. Perhaps Thanksgiving dinner seems like some sort of puzzle to be solved. But what if you love all the classic dishes but don't want to sacrifice on flavor? It takes some creativity, but it's totally doable. I did each of these dishes so many times, and all of my colleagues, um, friends, my kids, you know, everyone sort of had different thoughts. Genevieve Coe is the cooking editor for the Los Angeles Times. She and her colleagues recently created an all-vegan Thanksgiving menu, and she's here to talk about it. Welcome. Thank you. So I think what I love best about what seems to be happening in the world of home cooking is it actually is happening. The vegetables are moving to the center of the table. That's what I'm hoping, too. And that definitely was the motivation behind the centerpiece, because for a long time for Thanksgiving, you could easily do a vegetarian menu, or a lot of people do like various tarts or things that are just really butter-laden, which is delicious, of course. I'll gladly eat it. But I just thought, why not make just the vegetables, the total star of the table and really make that the centerpiece, like a turkey. So the centerpiece of the photograph, at least, was this gorgeous purple cauliflower. So the story behind that, I mean, when I was originally conceiving of the menu, I had thought about just these whole roasted vegetables that develop an almost meaty texture when you actually slow bake them. So instead of quick roasting them, slow baking them whole so that they become luscious and juicy inside, but develop a crisp outside. And then I think what you have to do actually with vegetables is just go find them and choose the best ones. So I was at the farmer's market and I was walking down the aisle and I could just see this giant purple cauliflower sitting by the front of the stand. And I rushed over and I asked, is this still for sale? So that one in the photo is exceptionally large. And I hope you all can find one too, because it just makes the centerpiece really fun and really spectacular. But even if you can only find smaller cauliflower or smaller other whole vegetables, you can arrange them in such a way to make them really gorgeous like a turkey. Yeah, think about the Great British Baking Show, and you can mm-hmm. pile them on top of each yes, other and skewer through. Absolutely. You, you can create definitely a full cornucopia effect. You know, I love throwing in seasonal fruits as well just to garnish the plate and make it really beautiful. Did you add anything else to the vegetables to sort of accentuate umami? Absolutely. So 
what I did with the vegetables was obviously coat them really generously with olive oil just to make sure they would get crackly and crisp on the outside. And I added a little water to the bottom of the pan to make sure they'd steam from the bottom so they'd cook through the center. But the other thing I did was I seasoned them with poultry seasoning. You can, of course, buy a blend, but I prefer to just make one because it takes just a few minutes to make your own poultry seasoning. But the effect is that when you're roasting them, it smells like a turkey is roasting in the oven. Yeah, we don't think about how much that smell that we like are like Pavlov's dogs. Right, exactly. Is the spices. Mm -hmm. So what is in your poultry seasoning? So I do a blend of rosemary, thyme, savory, sage, marjoram, and the key is nutmeg, freshly grated nutmeg in there too. And that actually adds a nice balance to all those hearty herbs, dried herbs. Oh, how nice. Do you do you use dried herbs or are you using all fresh? So for the poultry seasoning, I actually use dried herbs because they, again, they give you a very distinct scent and they actually have a more concentrated flavor. So I feel like dried herbs and spices really went out of fashion for a good long time. But I actually just published a book with Lear Lev Serkars on spices. And he taught me so much about spices and dried herbs and spices that I incorporated them here into this Thanksgiving menu. And when I did, I realized that that was the source of so much of what we smell in Thanksgiving dinners and adding those spices there. And then I used fresh herbs in the gravy. I used fresh thyme in this double mushroom gravy where you're adding so much umami with dried, any dried mushrooms work. But if you use seps, porcinis, that really gives it this depth of flavor. And I also used bourbon in it because that also gives it this smoky depth that feels and tastes a little meaty, even though it's not. And so when you eat that with the whole vegetables, it just is definitely as satisfying as a hearty, meaty meal. So the mushroom gravy is both fresh mushrooms and dried. Exactly, yes. What are the fresh mushrooms you're using? Cremini's, yeah. I do love the sort of brown mushroom flavor in there. Yeah. So you have the cremini or the seps, but you could use shiitake. Absolutely. Any dried mushrooms work. So talk us through your stuffing. So I used broth as well, but I used vegetable broth. But what gave it the sort of richness that might normally come from butter is nutritional yeast. What is nutritional yeast? So nutritional yeast, well, in this context, is really just used as a flavoring agent that really mimics a buttery, cheesy, almost cheesy flavor. And it just gives it this incredible richness. And so I start just by caramelizing Onions, actually, that's not the right word. I don't caramelize onions and celery. I saute them lightly so they retain a bit of crunch. And then I actually saute the nutritional yeast with it just for a second. Just So to, it's a powder. It's a powder, yes. They look almost like flakes. And they're sold in every supermarket. I think one of the best uses, absolutely, is tossing it just with popcorn. And it adds just an incredible deliciousness, like so much better than buttered popcorn because it has an almost cheesy element as well. But in the context of stuffing, it gives you that richness, too. And if you use a good loaf of bread, you're all set. I mean, you're not going to miss whatever meaty elements might have been in the stuffing anyway. You know, another super traditional side dish that shows up on so many Thanksgiving tables, the smothered green beans mm -hmm. with creamed mushrooms and yes. fried onions. Yes. So what is the creamed part of the mm -hmm. creamed mushrooms? So I was really going for the classics with this menu, trying to help people just taste everything the way they've always tasted, but actually with a little more flavor. And so to get the creamed mushrooms to taste like that cream of mushroom soup. And so what I used was actually oat milk. And the way that I created a cream texture was, again, olive oil, sauteing the mushrooms and onions. 
in olive oil and then making a roux, basically. So adding flour to um, thicken the sauce ultimately and then slowly stirring in that oat milk until you really developed something like a bechamel, a butterless bechamel. And you had that natural sweetness from the oat milk that mimics that cream of mushroom soup. And the mushrooms, of course, have that great mushroomy flavor, but even better because they're fresh and they've been freshly sautéed. And then, of course, those crispy onions. Oh, my gosh, you have to have the crispy onions. (laughs) That's really what makes the dish, yeah. Aquafaba. (laughs) Yes. Tell us what aquafaba is and how you've used it with your sweet potatoes. So aquafaba is the liquid that you get when you cook chickpeas. And that same liquid is just in a can of chickpeas, so you don't actually have to cook a full batch of chickpeas to get it. And it is interesting that I don't know why it took us so long to figure out that you could whip it into basically a meringue, but I also... Whoever started it, and I tried really hard to research and find out. I, I still don't know the source. I don't know if you do. It's how did how did you figure that out? How did you ever think to whisk this liquid to the point where it created these billowy peaks? You can absolutely sweeten it, but in this application, what I did was I wanted to create something like the marshmallow top that you would get with a normal sweet potato casserole. And I did test this with vegan marshmallows that exist, and you can absolutely do that, but that's just too sweet for my taste. I just wanted something fluffy and beautiful and fun to scoop on top on top of these sweet potatoes to create that marshmallow effect and then to torch them to take the sweet edge off. But I didn't add very much sugar to the meringue, and it's still whipped up really nicely. So we have to talk about pie. Yes. I actually think it's pretty easy to make pie vegan, especially if Mm -hmm. it's a fruit pie. Mm -hmm. You call your pie an oven-fried apple pie with a spiced shortening crust. Mm -hmm. So what fat did you use to allow you to have it be vegan? So I used trans fat-free shortening, vegetable shortening, which has been used in pies forever. I mean, they are really the secret. Shortening is a secret to a really flaky crust. But I don't actually like the flavor of a shortening crust because it just tends to taste a bit oily. Sometimes it can be a bit metallic if you're using a not great shortening. And so I wanted to actually flavor the crust itself. And so I added lots of spices into the crust itself. And I used fresh apple cider to sweeten it and moisten it. And my original idea actually had been to top the pie with these strips and to brush them and to coat them with cinnamon sugar for a churro effect. So I really wanted to have this like churro-topped apple pie. But the first time I did this recipe, the second I opened the oven, I was just hit with this scent of McDonald's fried apple pie. I just, it it was such a nostalgic moment to just immediately be taken back to, you know, waiting in line at McDonald's with my parents and begging for a fried apple pie. And when the pie finally cooled and I took a bite, I realized that that was actually what it really tasted like, but in the best possible way, like a really fresh, right, (laughs) fresh new version. So for your pecan pie, you end up using coconut milk. Yes. You know, my my goal is always how to make it better than the original, how to make it better than what you knew, but also still taste like what you know. So with a crust, I did ultimately end up using the water from a can of coconut milk. It's not exactly water, but the um, non-fat the, the part, liquid. the liquid part, as a liquid instead of just normal water, because that actually really added flavor to it. And what I wanted with this pecan pie, too, is that I wanted to give readers a crust that you didn't have to roll, that you could press into the pan. I mean, there are a few things I enjoy more than rolling a pie crust, but I 
completely understand. There are a lot of people who it's very intimidating. have no interest in it, don't want to do it. And so this oil-based crust actually is really easy to press in. The addition of that coconut water does give it a richness. And the texture of the crust, instead of being sort of light and flaky like the apple pie, it's almost more like a cookie. It's, it's like a shortbread like, It's almost. more like a shortbread cookie crust. Which is good. Yeah, which is great. And the <laughs> filling, in my humble opinion, the filling is as good as, if not better than the classic one. And in the filling, I actually use flax seeds in place of eggs to bind. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah, to bind the custard, to give it that custardy pecan pie texture. And then the fat from the coconut milk goes in there. And that also adds this richness so instead of the butter. And that, along with just a shot of bourbon, <laughs> definitely makes the pecan pie filling taste yeah, so rich and interesting and definitely gives it that great gooey, crunchy texture that you're looking for. Well, you have certainly given us a lot of wonderful ideas. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I've been talking with Genevieve Coe, cooking editor for the LA Times. Find a link to the all-vegan Thanksgiving menu on the Good Food website. That's kcrw.com slash goodfood. I'm definitely making that gravy. After a short break, the market report and a new review from Patricia Escarsaga. Don't go anywhere. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Now for the market report, here's Jillian Ferguson. This is Jillian Ferguson with the market report. I am here with Akasha Richmond of Akasha Restaurant in Culver City. And Akasha, we are now just days away from Thanksgiving. Every year you put on this amazing feast at the restaurant where you do all of, of course, your spin on the savory classics, but you also feature this incredible pie buffet. Now, I want you to paint us a picture. What is on the pie buffet this year at Akasha? Well, of course we do pumpkin. I used to do lemon meringue. This year I'm doing a cranberry meringue, Mm. which is like a lemony lime cranberry curd with meringue on top. I do a vegan apple slab pie. I do a pecan pie. We do our salty chocolate tart. We do a fabulous coconut custard pie made with coconut milk. Well, you said two words that struck my fancy, which is pecan pie, pecan pie. I just feel like pecans don't get enough love in California. I think it's because we are so inundated with walnuts and almonds, which of course are incredible pistachios. We don't hear a lot about pecans, but Thanksgiving is really a chance for pecans to get their due. So how do you make your pecan pie? And I think it's essential for Thanksgiving. Of course. Absolutely. Yes. I have this great recipe from Theo Stefan who produces olive oil and Los Olivos, and she uses olive oil in her pie in the filling instead of butter. I can't tell you how good it is. It's rich, it's buttery, and, you know, in an olive oil (laughs) scent, and I really love it. And what's the sweetener that you use? It's part maple syrup, it's part brown sugar, a little coconut sugar. Mm. You know, we mix it up. Okay, and do you use a butter crust? We use a butter crust. Okay. So you've got both the butter and the olive oil in there. She has a great recipe for an olive oil crust, too, which is not great when you have to make 15 of them for a buffet. (laughs) But if I was home, I would make her olive oil crust. She freezes olive oil in little ice cube trays. And, you know, when you need your butter really cold and you kind of shave it to do the that it becomes like that. Wow. It's terrific. Okay, so I'm just really trying to picture this pie buffet because you just said 15 pecan pies you also listed like 
what, six other desserts. Six other, plus blueberry. I forgot the blueberry, oh. and I have the Murray Farms blueberries this year. Yum. How big is the table to fit all these desserts? We have a cafe at Akasha, so it's the whole mm. top of the coffee bar on the cafe. Okay, so people come in, they have their reservations, they eat Thanksgiving dinner, and then do they come up and just take whatever they, come they want? Up and go crazy. Oh, I forgot the chocolate bourbon banana <laughs> cream. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Oh my gosh, it sounds incredible. So do you serve any of these pies with like ice cream, whipped cream? Do they, are they room temperature? Do they have to be warmed up? Well, we put them out as needed. Okay. So, you know, you open the buffet, there's eight, nine pies out there. The cold ones come out of the region. We, you know, put them out and then they get to room temperature. I like to keep the pumpkin at room temperature. We do whipped cream and then we do like a coconut whip. Because, you know, if we do 500 at the restaurant, there's 100 vegan meals, 100 fish meals, and, you know, 300 turkey. So we actually have a lot of vegan customers that come for Thanksgiving because we do a full three-course vegan meal and two, three of the pies are vegan. What's some of your signature savory vegan dishes for Thanksgiving? Well, our soup is always vegan. So this year we're doing a cauliflower bisque with pickled cauliflower. And then for the vegans, they get roasted mayatake and king oyster mushrooms. It's sort of the center of the plate. And then I get the honey nut squash from the market, and I roast them, and I fill them with stuffing, Mm. with a chestnut stuffing, which is really great for vegans. And I make a porcini mushroom gravy and mashed potatoes with the cultured coconut butter and the cranberry chutney. And then every entree gets its choice of a side. So we do the vegan green bean casserole with the fried onions on top. We have Brussels sprouts that are vegan. It's pretty good for the vegans. Are there any reservations left for Thanksgiving this year? There's always reservations last minute. You always get cancellations. I mean, we're pretty booked up, but call because... We can always fit people in. All right. Good to know. Thanks, Akasha. Thanks, Jillian. Good to see you. Good to see you. That was Akasha Richmond of Akasha Restaurant in Culver City. She puts on an incredible Thanksgiving for omnivores, vegetarians, and vegans alike at Akasha every year. We're talking now with Laura Spensley of Cal Pecan, the pecan vendor here at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Laura, you grow pecans up in Clovis, which is in Fresno County. Yes. Give us um, some background on your farm and how long you've been growing these. Uh, about 40 years. 40 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Originally, my, it was my parents. Is Fresno County a large producer of pecans? No, not really. Yeah, when I think of California nuts, you know, so often we're thinking of almonds or walnuts or pistachios. Pecans, just, I, I don't know why we don't think of pecans so much in California. Why do you think that is? Well, I think you just drive down 99, you can see the almonds there are pecan trees off the 99, too. Oh, there are? Okay. But you can always tell an almond because they have the prettiest flowers. What does the pecan tree look like when it's in bloom? It has little seedling droplings. It doesn't have a flower. Oh, okay. So we just don't recognize them in the same way we do the almonds. And how many acres are you growing? 60. I grow four different varieties. Okay. Shoshones, Cheyennes, Wichita's, and Cherokees. Talk us through the differences between those four varieties. Well, it's basically the shape. There's a subtle difference in the flavor. Some are a little thinner shell, some are a little harder. Like Shoshone's are a little harder shell. They're round. Wichita's are a thinner shell and they're long. And how hard is it to get those shells off? I don't shell them. I send them to a shelling plant in um, 
Visaya. I see. Okay. Are pecans harvested in the early spring, similar to other nuts? Yeah, they're harvested right now in the fall. And they're, they're done by two different machines. One machine will grab a hold of the trunk and shake it. The nuts fall down. It's another machine will blow them into balls. And a third machine will pick them up. Wow, I bet that is incredible to see. And then they go on the dryer for like three days on low heat, maybe 70 degrees to dry them. What does it taste like before it's dried? It tastes the same, but it's, it's just a different texture. It's kind of wetter, yeah. right? Yeah. More moist. I remember that from growing up in the South. All right, well, this is exciting. Thank you so much for all this great information. Thank you. That was Laura Spensley of Cal Pecan. You can find her pecans at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market. She'll be here with plenty of pecans for all your pecan pie this Thanksgiving. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. Finally, a new restaurant review from LA Times restaurant critic Patricia Escarcega. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. Oh, I can't wait to hear where we're going today. Yes, so today we're headed to Orange County. Specifically, we're going to Fountain Valley and check out what's happening at Brodard. Brodard is one of those places that it's easy to become overwhelmed. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. The menu, not counting desserts and drinks, maybe six pages long, and, and I mean tiny print, both sides of the page. Um, there's a lot to choose from here. What kind of restaurant is it? So this is a very long-standing, beloved Vietnamese restaurant. Do they have a particular specialty? Yes. So if you know, if you grew up in Orange County, especially if you grew up dining around Little Saigon, you know Bredard is famous for popularizing grilled pork spring rolls. They have a great origin story. It's the Dang family. Um, they have a little dynasty going on of Vietnamese restaurants. And uh, one of the daughters was putting together, so they were selling grilled pork sausage, and she started to assemble them into rolls just as a snack, and people started to line up. I interviewed the owners, and they told me the story, and then people started to line up and um, point at the snack on her table and say, what's that? Can I have one of those? So, of course, they quick on their feet, they put them together, and they turned it into an assembly line, and I think at one point, they were pumping out 5,000 rolls a day. <laughs> It's it's definitely the place you go to experience the wonder and variety of rolls. Exactly, yeah. The popularity of that pork spring roll has blossomed into just this whole menu of different spring rolls. Um, so now they have a ribeye spring roll. They have a coconut shrimp spring roll. They have an eggplant tempura spring roll. So you can get... You know, whatever spring roll you're in the mood for, they, they make them there fresh. They're, they're delicious. They come with special sauce, and the sauce itself has developed a cult following. If you Google Bedard sauce, <laughs> you get dozens of cooking blogs, people um, developing their own versions of the sauce. Did you go with a lot of people? I did. I made sure to recruit as many people as I could so I can really make a dent on this menu. And I was interested in reviewing... Bredard because I recently had lunch at Bredard Chateau and I was doing a little digging and I and I noticed that the original uh, location of Bredard, um, the one that was uh, behind the Mall of Fortune, they moved at the very end of 2017. So now they have a huge new standalone space um, in Fountain Valley 
And it, it's such a great um, new space. You walk in there, it's got huge vaunted ceilings. They've got a bar now. They've got a full bakery. And you realize just what the Dang family has built. They've created this just great kind of brand. We think Redard and I don't know about you, I think delicious spring rolls. And, and now I also think great bakery and a great menu of uh, classic Vietnamese cooking. So I thought it was a good idea to just pause and take a take a look at what, what they've done and check out the new location. What else did you have there that you really enjoyed? I'm really a sucker for all their delicious kind of classic signature dishes. So they have the lunar cakes, which are the little pastry cups, and each of them comes with an individual springy, really fresh shrimp. It comes with a pile of fresh herbs and lettuce and a delicious garlicky dipping sauce, and you wrap up the the cake in the the herbs and you dip it in the sauce. It's really great. It's it's you know refreshing. I tried to make a, as big a dent as I could in their noodle soup menu, which is one of their biggest sections of their menu. And they have great flat rice noodle dishes. I really like their Hanoi-style pork noodles. And again, they really cover the entire country of Vietnam. They don't specialize in a specific region. It's, it's a little old-fashioned that way. I feel like a lot of restaurants are focused on regional cooking, but it really is a great all-occasion restaurant in that sense that you could bring a large group and everybody can find something that, you know, they can really enjoy on this huge menu. Thank you so much for reintroducing us to this great classic place. Thank you so much for having me, Evan. That's it for our show this week. In case you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You know that you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, please give us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks to the Good Food team. They are Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, Chuck Previtary, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Jacqueline Kim, Laura Kondarajan, and Amy Ta. I'm Evan Kleiman. I wish all of you a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. I'll be back next week with more Good Food.